Welcome in to the 48 Minutes Podcast on Believe, presented by Bet Online. I'm Ross Geiger, joined alongside Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media and World B, Michael Freer. Just a reminder, football is back, and Bet Online is your number one information source for all your sports wagering info with all the up-to-the-minute the stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football at your fingertips with BetOnline's real-time updates on statistics, news, and odds. From week one all the way to the college football playoff and Super Bowl, BetOnline gives you access to the best football promotions and contests available anywhere online. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action. Remember to use our promo code BLEAV, that is B-L-E-A-V, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. And Bruce, tonight we got a, another exciting guest joining us here. Why don't you tell us more? Well, we have the author of an upcoming book on Urban Magic Johnson. He's also one of the most prolific authors of sports books of our generation. And he's coming up in just a matter of seconds. So stand by. Roland Lazenby is one of the great sports authors of the last half century. He's written more than five dozen nonfiction books and contributed to many others. Among his subjects are Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Phil Jackson, Larry Bird, Jerry West, Ralph Sampson, baseball legends Ted Williams and Ichiro Suzuki, football legends Johnny Unitas and Tom Brady. Roland's book, Bull Run, was named Sports Book of the Year for 1997 by the Independent Publishers Association. His other book on uh, the Bulls, or one of his other books, I should say, Michael Jordan, The Life, was named Sports Book of the Year 2015 by the Polish Sports Book Awards. He's also been a member of the faculty at Virginia Tech's Department of Communication and Radford University School of Communication. We are honored to have you on as a guest this week on 48 Minutes. Welcome, Roland. Thanks so much, Bruce. Here's my new book. It's called Magic, Life of Magic Johnson. I just got it today, so I'm I'm pretty pleased. I'm uh, I've had the proofs for a long time, but now I've finished book. So uh, this new book about Magic Johnson is going to be released on October 24th, just under a month from now. Can you tell us a little bit about it and why you decided to write it? Well, you know, I like to write about great competitors. I've had a lot of fun doing that. Um, I really got to spend a good amount of time in writing about Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. I got to spend a lot of time with them just as a guy, uh, a, a, a reporter, a writer, writing about the teams they were on. Uh, and I did a good bit of that starting in um, 89 with the Lakers and Magic toward the end of his career. But I uh, spent nowhere amount the, uh, near the amount of time I did with Jordan's teams or Kobe's teams. And um, while I got to know those guys uh, a good bit, you know, Magic was an easy guy, but he was easy with everybody. But I really didn't have that close personal relationship with him. And so uh, his story is very big. He's got a huge life. It has uh, taken me five years to complete this book. His life is so, so wow. huge. The book is 800 pages. Oh, so uh, it's, uh, it's been a, a push. 
You know, magic has been front and center in American life for more than 40 years, as you just alluded to. So we all think we know him pretty well, right, Magic Johnson. But can you tell us something about his story that we probably never knew? Well, it appears his um, great-great-great-grandfather was a sergeant in the first colored cavalry in the Civil War. And so I, I thought that was unusual. You know, with data mining today, we can research like never before. Just in the last few years, it's changed dramatically. And I, I just thought it was odd. Magic, the guy known for racehorse basketball, had a great, great, great grandfather in the cavalry. I thought that was pretty cool. Well, um, all right, I'll go. I'll, I'll take another one here. So as important as Magic has been as a baller, his activism after being diagnosed as HIV positive in 1991 and his work in bringing economic opportunity to underserved communities may be even more important. So what are your feelings about that? Is he the ultimate citizen athlete? Well, you know, uh, I actually began thinking of that term uh, when I was planning to write about LeBron James. But uh, in many ways, although Magic's tenure is controversial, um, he, he is very much a citizen athlete. And, you know, in the mid-70s, he, he was going through the, the busing crisis or integration in Lansing, Michigan. At the same time, right in that period, I was a 24-year-old varsity head coach. I was at Blacksburg High School in Virginia, and I worked with a lot of impressive kids. I really did. It was an amazing time, a great experience for me. And then when I began doing this book, because there's so much about Magic's early years that really isn't known, I, I really wanted to focus on that. I was interested in revisiting that time. And... I spent hours and hours with his two high school coaches, George Fox and, and Pat Holland. And I mean, I did more than 50 interviews with each of them. I, and his longtime advisor, Charles Tucker, who was there right as Magic was uh, becoming an adolescent. And everywhere I turned, I, I started thinking, you know, this kid, Irvin, is maybe one of the most impressive people I've ever discovered. And he was that way as a teenager. And um, I, I think the other, the other thing that came out of this, you know, people just sort of assume that this all happened. But magic from an early age was a major, major control freak. And he, he had this great will and all great competitors have this will. They want to drive the agenda and, uh, you know, magic controlled everything on the landscape and he did it his whole career. You know, he hardly let his family members ever speak to the press. I mean, you can find a quote here or there, but he had the whole thing so buttoned down, but he, he entered the game when tall guys, you know, weren't, First of all, tall guys had only been in the game since about the early 1940s with uh, a variety of guys. But
But he came in and immediately changed coaching. Now, they didn't proclaim him the point guard right away. That took uh, this gradual thing. But they really couldn't – his coaches couldn't keep the ball out of his hands. First, he was a great rebounder. Second, he was just going to take off and go. And his coaches were so amazed at what he could do in the open court. They just did what any smart coach would do. They, they more and more and more along his three years of varsity high school ball just let him take over completely. Now, Roland, uh, one of the things that's always impressed me about Magic Johnson post-career is how he's become such a successful businessman. Is that something that is a focus within the book at all at the near the end of his career? Do you discuss some of his business ventures or is this all about his career as a basketball player? Oh no, this is a, this is a very, it, it, the, the book stretches from the 1830s with his two great, great, great grandfathers on plantations in North Carolina. And it, it goes all the way through, you know, with, with all of the Magic Johnson theaters that Sony purchased and all of the different things there. Uh, there's a, a primo moment that was captured by the Smithsonian Channel and a program on Afrofuturism where they, they had this uh, New York college professor watching Black Panther in at the Magic Johnson Cinema in Harlem. And... It, it was sort of this black power mo- moment. And I sort of write in some ways these biographies as black power stories because, and, and you know, I was thinking about this. I went to Japan, my, my son-in-law and our youngest kid and, and their child, they were there for a year. He's a PhD at Harvard. And he's over there. He's a Japanese studies major. One morning, he sent me these photos really early in the morning from this um, samurai graveyard down near the coast. And it was this eerie photo. And it just hit me. I was thinking about it. He's over there studying warriors. And, you know, there probably definitely isn't a more put-upon ethnicity, ethnic group than black males over the long course of American history, just, uh, you know, I'm a Southerner. I witnessed it growing up. I, I, you know, I worked on the local sewer and water crew with older black men that were, I mean, it was just brutal the way they were treated. And I was thinking that what we've seen, you've had guys like Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, Magic Johnson, LeBron James, but particularly Michael and Kobe, who have become metaphors, modern metaphors for warriors. They are loved all over the planet, and they are viewed as these warrior spirits. My my book, Michael Jordan, The Life, just now is going into its 21st language. You know, all these cultures have bought the book. I, I don't have to tell you about Kobe. My Kobe book's in 12 languages. Uh, there's uh, statues of him in China. And the um, 
the view has changed dramatically. It's such a powerful and positive and important thing. And I was, it just sort of hit me like a ton of bricks while I was in Japan visiting um, my daughter's family, that, that huge change. And it is very important. That doesn't mean that everything is magically fixed, but it, it means that there is a, a very different view today. Hey, Roland, you mentioned in your library of books that you've written include Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. And he's, these are two among the all-time greats, and they get compared to each other all the time. As far as uh, – I know they're comparison. I know they're very much alike in so many ways. As somebody who's watched them play throughout their careers, do you ever see like where is there what was there a difference in their two games? Because to me, they're about as alike as you could possibly get. Uh, they are in a lot of ways. Uh, I, you know, I was very close with Tex Winter. I introduced Kobe to Tex Winter, and I introduced Kobe to George Mumford, the mindfulness expert that worked with Phil Jackson's teams. Kobe was a young kid; he needed a lot of help. And he, he was really up against it on those veteran Lakers teams. And uh, it, it was a tough situation. But I, I would talk with Tex about this. And Tex had a rundown of things. And, it you know, you know there are situations were very much alike, but also very different. And Tex, just, just to begin, Tex said, well, Michael's hands are a little larger Michael was stronger in the post. He could he could hold that position in the post. That and Kobe eventually got strong enough to do it, but it, it took time because Michael Michael came to the NBA as an older player. The biggest difference, Tex said, was that Michael went to North Carolina where he, he played on a team that was where the major assistant coach was Coach Bill Guthridge, who had played for Tex at Kansas State and then had been Tex's long-term assistant. Now, Dean Smith did not run the triangle offense, but he ran a system, a, a very tightly controlled system offense. And Anthony Tichy, in my interviews with him, said, you know, I don't think Michael – ever has gotten the credit for having the character and the discipline to play in that very tight system. The scouts would complain. They, they couldn't really see what the players from Carolina could do because that system was so tightly wrapped. Um, Kobe, of course, the, the tragedy in some ways is that Kobe's parents badly needed the money even though Joe Bryan, his father, Jellybean, had played 16 years. And Sonny Vaccaro explained to me that, you know, probably the most clandestine thing he did was to sneak in and steal Kobe away from college basketball. Um, Sonny admitted he had a vendetta against the NCAA. He had a vendetta against Nike. He wanted to steal the best player from Nike and from the NCAA. And it, perchance, that happened. Um, and it just, 
uh, it's this series of events that with Sonny's help, I lay out in the book, but the, the thing was they, they're similar players. They both played in that triangle offense, but I, I have to say that, um, Phil Jackson was very much a hierarchy guy. And of course, in the, with the Chicago Bulls, the, that hierarchy was Michael, Michael, Michael. And Phil worked very hard at building that relationship with Michael Jordan. And to Tex Winter's mind, that was the essence of Phil Jackson's greatness. You know, building back- that relationship with Michael. Sorry. Didn't no, mean to that's step in on you there. No, I'm running off hard there. I, there's a second half to that I'll get to in a minute. Go ahead. <laughs> well, we're going to talk. We're going to do our, our second quarter on MJ and Kobe. Oh, so okay. there's okay, so we'll have good. plenty I'll, of time to explore right. that there. I just want to take, come back to magic from that pen. No, it's a, this is a free form thing. We'll 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 pick it up when we pick it up. That's fine. I just had one more thing on magic real quick. And then I know Ross wanted to ask you something uh, else uh, before we moved on to the second, but I worked with magic at ESPN for a while back when he was there. And uh, I found him to be just an unbelievably nice guy. So one time I brought my wife and kids to the green room and I introduced them to the great magic Johnson. And, you know, he couldn't have been nicer. They probably talked for about two or three minutes and, you know, it was time to go. You know, we didn't want to wear out our welcome there. So we moved on. So about a year later, um, my wife and I saw him again and he addressed her by her first name without me even reintroducing her. I was absolutely stunned that somehow he remembered her name after such a brief visit a year earlier. You can only imagine how that must have made her feel. I mean, this guy truly was on another level. They were all on his stream. The ushers, everybody in in, in the whole game, the ushers, uh, uh, the people in the locker room picking up the towels and jocks, uh, all the the ball boys, uh, and, and this this just extended. He he was, um, he had an emotional intelligence. And I know that's a term that's thrown around a lot, but they may have invented it just to fit Irvin Johnson. And there are so many stories, assistant coaches, uh, scouts, lowly worms in an NBA organization who absolutely, and, and, you know, in the 80s, those NBA organizations aren't like they are today. They don't have, I mean, just an ungodly number of people and coaches. So, but but Magic knew them all, and he, he it was personal. It wasn't some fraudulent thing. He um, he's truly remarkable in those gifts. Now, rolling real quickly here before we get to that second quarter. I, of course, just enjoyed watching the Winning Time series on HBO. I'm sure you took a look at that yourself. I did see that you wrote a story on that in Lindy Sports Pro Basketball, the NBA preview magazine that is out on newsstands now. Wanted to know your thoughts on the show in general. Were you surprised that it was canceled? And, uh, you know, 
as far as Jerry West is concerned, did you think he was treated unfairly in the in the show? Yes, I think he was treated unfairly. Um, but and, and they did it intentionally, uh, and they knew what they were doing, uh, and so. Uh, you know, it's based on Jeff Perlman's excellent book. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to this to be construed as criticism of Jeff because it he wasn't playing fast and loose with any facts in his work. But they really just went out of their way. You know, uh, Lon Rosen, Magic's longtime friend and agent, I... I interviewed him probably 50 times for this book too. But we were talking one day because they made this big deal about Jerry Buss's mother in the first season. And she supposedly was who came in and gave him the money when he didn't have the, the last three, two and a half million to buy the team. And it was a deal that was just wildly going back and forth with Jack Kent cook. Well, as Lon laughed and pointed out, Jerry's mother died four years before he bought the Lakers. Oh, and goodness. so it, it, it's a typical Hollywood thing. But, you know, I, I did a book for ESPN Books, a biography of Jerry. And I spent lots of time with his family. And Jerry, the gracious gentleman of the Southern Appalachians that he is, he, he gave me a good amount of time. But Charles West, his brother, really explained and I did a deep background with Jerry's book just like I did uh, Magic's. I I went deep into Magic's background. There were a lot of reasons for that. But with Jerry, the reason was I had a conversation with Pete Newell back in uh, 1992 and Pete Newell told me, said if you really want to understand Jerry West, you have to understand West Virginia. And of course, I was born in Bluefield, West Virginia. My father was one of these old two-handed set shooters in the 30s and played semi-pro ball uh, in all that Southern West Virginia circuit. So, And my old man worshipped Jerry West. But Charles also disclosed something that I did not put in my book at that time. He disclosed that Jerry was on medication for a bipolar condition and had been. Jerry is, like his mother, a very tightly wound perfectionist. Uh, And in fact, uh, as my book explains, when Jerry's much beloved older brother was killed in Korea, Jerry was about 13 at the time. And he and his mother both had a nervous breakdown over that. And I, you know, it was obvious. I I didn't state this at that time, uh, but it was obvious. And, And Jerry is, is an American legend. He's not perfect. Um, they really went out of their way to make it a cartoon show and, and they really overdid it. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot going on in Hollywood with scripted shows. They, they really don't want to do any kind of period piece. It's so expensive now. And, um, 
And so that's that's shifted to, uh, and I don't understand it, uh, but I know that to be a fact. And, and I just think in some ways, it was just a very cynical thing, what Adam McKay and the producers did with that. And I think the way they, it was almost like they were bullying Jerry and laughing at it. And uh, the show was supposedly wildly popular. I, I could get through some episodes if I gritted my teeth, but I just, I, I you know, I guess I, I also have some personal resentment. As all of you know, when you're, when you're broadcasting or whatever you're doing, we're all under intense pressure to get it right. And then suddenly here comes somebody where, mil- I mean, millions of people watch us, obviously not millions enough, but, and they're just, you know, they had the whole whiteout party uh, where uh, Norm Nixon supposedly schooled magic. Never, never happened. That was not, I I mean, they're just making up things and laughing at everybody almost. And so I am sad because we all know that basketball projects, when I came along and started doing projects in 1982, basketball books were a laughing stock. They were considered the worst selling of everything. America was ruled by baseball and football. And uh, and all that changed with Michael and Kobe. Um, you know, foreign publishers hadn't translated books. And after they had the big success in Italy, France, Poland, all over Europe, Asia, uh, with, with Michael Jordan, the life, they went back. I, one of the things I was happiest about, they went back and they were translating all these other great American basketball books. And there have been a ton of them that badly needed to be exposed to the world. And that that is a trend that has started. But, and I'm not saying anything here, but there's a, there's a report behind the scenes in Hollywood. I, I, I'm now represented by a couple of guys at Paradigm, and they were explaining to me that there have been so many basketball podcasts that they've had trouble with the ratings and the revenue. Uh, and I don't know. I know there that a lot of these circumstances, there's been a good bit of money paid out from podcasts. And I, but what what's going on now is suddenly uh, you had the great success of Air. You had the great success of Last Dance. And it appeared that Winning Time was this big, successful uh, production, and it was very controversial. Um, but people loved it everywhere. I turned to everybody said, man, I love seeing uh, that Quincy dude with that smile like magics, and they got some lampoon of Larry Bird. And it was like a cartoon, and a lot of people just were able to have fun with it, and I'm happy for them. But, well, you know, oh, I'm sorry. It's tough. No, yeah. I'm running off. You, you need to get a hook and pull it on me. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't treat our guests like that. You know, World Be Freer, well, as you can see, is wearing his West Virginia hat, his West Virginia 
uh, you know, sweatshirt. So uh, uh, he was nodding like a bobblehead when you were commenting on uh, the way Jerry was mistreated in that show, World B. You felt that way as well, did you not? Yeah, it took about one episode, and I, I was done. I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't watch something that depicted, um, by all accounts, uh, somebody like Jerry West, uh, incre- you know, so uh, poorly, for lack of a better phrase. I, um, I'll tell you a real quick story here. Tell Roland when I was a freshman in college, I got a hold. I worked in the sports information department at West Virginia. And one day I'm in the office and there are some movie reels and it said, you know, the old movie reels for people who don't remember aren't old enough. And you put them on a screen and you show it. And it said 1959 WVU holiday tournament and 1960, whatever it was. And I got a projector. I put it on, played it on the wall. It was Jerry West Mountaineer team. And he was so far ahead of, uh, fundamentally, from everybody else in that era, it was unbelievable. I'd never seen anything like that. Somebody be so far advanced from everybody else that was playing. And I, you know, from that point on, obviously being at West Virginia and, and uh, attending there and, and reading up about him, he just became somebody I admired for the longest time. But I'll never, ever forget watching those movie reels one day and seeing in color a movie reel of Jerry West, West Virginia at the holiday tournament against, I think, North Carolina and Kentucky. And it was an amazing experience to see somebody so far advanced from everybody else on the court. Everybody else was playing the same way. And Jerry was just you know, a generation ahead of everybody, it almost seemed like. Wow, that's great. Jerry could get wound up. He cared so deeply and that was why he was a hero to everybody. And Jerry could, I, you know, I was in 99, the Lakers were going through a miserable season. The, the strike shortened. And I'm, I'm in the forum. It's after practice. I'm rebounding free throws for Kobe. And uh, Kobe is practicing missing free throws for end-of-game situations where they're down. Only Kobe would practice missing free throws. And a lot of things happen in this session while I'm rebounding free throws. He tells me he dreams that Tex Winter will be his coach. And I'm going, oh, wow, man, Tex is my buddy. And so I said, oh, and I'm thinking I'd been watching and talking to Kobe for two years. He was a lost lonely kid and he the, you know the Lakers offense wasn't real well organized and so I got text to phone him and having an assistant coach text was still an assistant with the Bulls in 99 phone a young star from another team I mean the antennas popped up at both the Bulls and the Lakers and Carl said what the hell is text doing phoning Kobe and, but he was just calling to tell him you know hey hey Young man, you're going to be great. And, of course, Tex, that fall was at the Lakers, and he was Kobe's Yoda. But I was rebounding free throws, and, and there were only two other people in the forum. There's Jerry West and this absolutely gorgeous TV reporter. Jerry's over there sort of flirting with her some. And I, I mosey on over after Kobe finishes his free throws. And, and I asked this innocuous question about Phil Jackson. 
and, and, and Jerry goes, fuck Phil Jackson. And he just, it, the ferocity of it, I, you know, I was taken aback and I'm going, no, no, Jerry, you, you misunderstand me. He goes, no, fuck Phil Jackson. And, and he knew that <laughs> Phil was, and he and, he and Phil had had their, you know, Phil broke his, Phil had those elbows and he broke Jerry's nose one night. And, um, but they'd had their turn and, you know, Phil, I later reported, uh, I, I got a tip that Phil had kicked Jerry West out of the team Lakers locker room during the Portland series of that, that epic Portland series. He said, Jerry, uh, this is a team meeting. I'd like to get you to step out. And that shot all over the NBA. Uh, people said, can you believe what Phil did? And so uh, Mark Heisler and Tony Kornheiser said that I was making it up. And they got on the air and they said, oh, this is some guy from Lazenby Plumbing. And they just blew me up. I mean, it's. And so they got off the air and somebody called Heisler and said, uh, Mark, because I published a story in the Chicago Sun-Times and said, Mark, I'm sorry, but Phil kicked Jerry out of the locker room. And, uh, of course, Jerry later talked about it in his book. But that, that was uh, a big dynamic there. Jerry could be... He controlled everything about the Lakers. Dell Harris said it was who coached the Lakers said it was never my team. He told me it was Jerry's, but Jerry wouldn't, wouldn't go down and butt in and practice, but you know, he would, he was just Jerry. It's, it's hard to explain. He was uh, my old man's idol. Well, Roland, we uh, certainly appreciate you being with us here today and sharing such cool stories about these NBA legends. We've gone ahead and reached our halftime buzzer, so we're going to go ahead and take a quick break and come back with you for the second half. (laughs) And we're back with the start of the uh, second half here. And, of course, Bruce, I'll let you take over here, but we, we do need to get Roland's thoughts on MJ and Kobe. All right. I'm going to start with the fact that when the COVID pandemic shut down the basketball world in March of 2020, our focus became the last dance, which was the story of the Bulls final championship season, 97-98. It was appointment viewing on ESPN uh, and during April and May when there was no games, right? But you wrote a book about that final 1998 championship season more than 20 years before the last dance came out called blood on the horns the long strange ride of michael jordan's chicago bulls which came out in august of 1998 the tv series was done with the cooperation of jordan and some people felt it really kind of downplayed certain topics that michael had vetoed so if we read your book what will we learn about michael and that team that the tv movie didn't show us Well, you know, Jason, the director, very bravely said that my books were his Bibles, but they did leave out probably the most embarrassing moment for Jordan and how he treated Jerry Krause on the team bus in the 1997 
NBA Finals series against Utah. And Jordan, on that team bus, he, you know, big victories or any old victory at all, smoking cigars, he'd have a beer, uh, they'd get rowdy, but Michael policed that team bus with a ferocity. I mean, just a, a really um, brutal sense of humor. And in writing that book, Tex had told me some of it. Some other team people had uh, let me in on it. And he had just literally abused the crap out of Krauss right there in front of Phil and everybody. And everybody was going, whoa, it went way over the line. He would sit in the back and go, Jerry Krauss, Jerry Krauss, let's go fishing. Don't worry, Jerry Krauss, if we don't catch anything, you can just eat the bait yourself. And, and, Everybody would would sort of laugh, but not really. You know, it was it was very very bad, and that's what you know when Krause said, "I don't care if we go eighty two and zero in that opening part of the next season, the last dance season." Krause was so angry, and uh, you know, I the Chicago Tribune Book Division hired me to to write the history of the Bulls in 1993 and I started working and, and I discovered right then that I did an interview with Phil. I was only going to get 10 minutes with him, but I asked him about Kunla, John Kunla, because I knew Kunla had recruited him. And I knew that Phil thought a lot of Kunla, but Kunla, it took 50 years for Kunla and his six Lakers championships to get in the Hall of Fame. And I, I was playing a mind game with Phil. I ended up getting like two hours with him at the pre-draft camp. All my, and, and he spent that time talking about all this stuff, about how bad Kraus was and their conflict. And so I wrote it all up and gave it to Phil, and I had Kraus listed at 5'8". Um, 2.30, and he the only thing he changed in all this intense criticism of Krause, he, he marked out the 2.30 and wrote in 2.60. Now, when, when I did the biography on Phil that really laid out some of the things he told me that day were a lie, and this is how weird it was. I sent it to Phil before the book came out in 2000 with plenty of time to comment and complain. Never heard a word from him. In 2019, I get an email where he's finally answering me and explaining a couple of things. But they were really, I mean, Phil could be a weird dude. But um, the the whole thing uh, on that bus, the, the, and, and that, and, and Phil would use the player's anger against Jerry. And Tex was the arbiter of all things. He was very loyal to Jerry. He thought the world of Phil. He was very frank about Phil, but Tex said, you know, Phil really bent over backwards to deal with Jerry the first three seasons here. But Jerry did not want Phil to get paid what successful NBA coaches are paid. And Tech said, you know, all the relationships just got burned out over their conflict. And it was largely Jerry's fault. But <clears throat> Jerry was furious when Michael was humiliating him in front of the team that Phil 
was just sitting there, not able to, you know, he would turn around and say, come on, Michael, or something like that. But it just went on. And everybody on that roster, you know, Steve Kerr, Luke Longley, the various people, you know, Tony Kukoc, and anybody on that team would be uh, attacked by Jordan at one time or another. And I had to go ask Jordan about this. And I had to figure out how the hell am I going to go to Michael? Because it's not like I was some power dude covering the, the Bulls. I, I mean, I was a the guy there. I obviously had my book contracts each year. But I, uh, the first few books I wrote them were um, picture books. I was writing the text for picture books. And so I had to go to Michael, and I said, Michael, um, you know, I want to talk about your sense of humor. You really use that to, to police this team. You know, it's part of your team leadership. And I figured I'd float it that way. And Michael was ready to talk. He, and he admitted, he said, yeah, I can be really hard. But I'm not being hard just to be hard. I have to know if these dudes can handle all kinds of stuff when they get on that floor with me. And Krause himself had, had told me, and I spent hours interviewing Krause. But I think Michael was mad at me. Michael had been good to me, but I, I think the reason, and, and I don't know all of it, I know the, the people at Skydance and Mandalay acknowledge they used my books to create that series, uh, both Michael Jordan, The Life, and the um, Blood on the Horns. But I think Michael was upset with me over the biography. He shook my hand after it came out. They treated me well in Charlotte whenever I was there. But, um, and I just don't think they wanted to pay me uh, to, uh, to go into that. I don't think they wanted to get that close because, yeah, Krause was a difficult guy. He was a bully. He had been bullied, and he was a good bully. I mean, but Michael was a major bully. James Worthy told me that when he was, uh, you know, a junior at at UNC, and Michael was a freshman, that Michael bullied him then. And, and uh, I, I just think you had two bullies at work there, and that was a little closer to the truth than they wanted to get. I would say, basically. All right. Hey, Roland. Uh, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to ask you, I wanted to ask you a real quick thing about Kobe and the book that you did. In your interviews, when you obviously knew him before you started doing the book, but during the process of writing, researching, interviewing, what surprised you the most about Kobe Bryant? What did you, or what caught you off guard in, in your preparation for doing the book? When you were doing the book, what caught you off guard? I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't ready for, I didn't know that or something like that. What was the most surprising aspect about him? Well, I had done a book on Kobe in 1999. I spent a lot of time with him and uh, I had his password. I could call him in his hotel room. The password was Buona Sarah and he was miserable. And he would tell me, I, I, I don't, they're trying to, to break me. They're trying to change me. And I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to get there. I, I don't know how, but I'm going to do it. And I, so I had been through all of that with him. I had, I had talked text 
uh, talked to Tex and gotten Tex to call it. I got George Mumford to fly to Houston to talk to him. Uh, and Kobe said, and he would later tell George, uh, I've never forgotten a word you ever told me. And he looked at him and said, you mean Phil Jack- Jackson let you guys uh, do all this stuff? But the thing that's a uh, meditation when we don't have time in the NBA for it, and George said, yeah, we do meditation. And, of course, Kobe very quickly, it was the only thing he and Shaq agreed on was George Mumford. But the thing that surprised me about Kobe when I did the second book and I, there was so much misunderstanding of Kobe. Uh, there was a misunderstanding. It wasn't his parents getting him at the Lakers. That was all Sonny Vaccaro. It was the most clandestine thing. Uh, Adidas did all that to get Kobe in place. And the thing was, Kobe knew all that. And he, he was being criticized all the time for it. He didn't give a damn. He didn't bother to even say, hey, man, I didn't do any of this stuff. My parents didn't do any of this stuff. They didn't even know I was getting traded to the Lakers till the night of the draft. He, I mean, he could have – everybody thought Kobe was the biggest asshole in the world as a kid. You know, Kobe put so much pressure on those Lakers with the way he was playing in practice. He could just embarrass them. And he was, it's like Rick Fox told me, he was like a kid who jumped the cafeteria line to get ice cream first because he had that big Adidas contract, uh, you know, and he was just, he was just more than they could handle. He had all that ambition. And what I was going to get to about the big difference between Kobe and Michael is that Michael was at the top of the hierarchy, but no coach in America would have put Kobe above Shaq in that Lakers hierarchy and Kobe went to see Phil. He thought, Oh, Phil's here. I'm, I'm going to be Mr. Triangle. And Phil was cold as a fish when Kobe went up to his hotel room after he got the job and, and Phil was de-emphasizing Kobe and Tex and Phil would get into it. And George Mumford, they would all jump in and say, you can't treat this kid like this. And one final point I want to make about the triangle, you know, the triangle is, basically a two-guard front, unbalanced four. One of the guards, they they make a pass, and one of the guards cuts the corner, three-point shooter. Think Steve Kerr. And so the the defense has to go over the corner with Kerr, you know, the corner three. And this is before the three blew up in the fans' mind. But there's Michael over on the back side of the defense. The triangle made it really tough to double-team Michael. And he could just eviscerate people from that weak side. And Phil would not let Kobe have all the things in the triangle that Michael had. He was not going to give him the keys to the machine. And, and, and you know, they de-benched. They took text. Text would speak his mind. And I... I remember in 2002 in Utah when uh, Summer League, when Tex was saying, yeah, I've been de-benched, that put him behind the bench because Tex was, was the kind of guy we're getting in Phil's ear and say, you better get off your ass and do some damn coaching. And, and Tex was, uh, it, you know, crazy like that. And everybody loved him for it. But uh, the the point is, 
Kobe, you know, Kobe threw everybody out of his life. I mean, it, he he threw his whole family out of his life, and he threw he didn't throw Tex out, but obviously he threw Phil and Shaq. He got he, and then he got charged in Colorado. He really destroyed his career, and he had the iron will to rebuild it, which to me was amazing after he made so many mistakes. You know, Roland, when Mark Spears was on this show back in July, he did a great job explaining uh, how Kobe connected with people he met almost every night during his career. Mark said Kobe prepared as if he were preparing for a game. If he was going to meet a a business titan, let's say, after the game, uh, he and his PR team did research on the person. So when he said hello to them and shook hands with them, he'd ask them something that really kind of resonated with them. And people were really touched by that. They really, you know, they felt that right here. Now, a lot of guys would ever, would never be able to pull something like that off, but he mastered it. I mean, how, you know, what do you, what does that say about this guy's mindset that he would go to those lengths to, to, to be that way? Well, the preparation he put into games. Uh, you know, you play a game, you get on the plane, everybody goes to sleep. If they don't, they're playing cards. And Kobe has this intensity. He is prepping and studying. And this is not occasionally. This was his routine. He he was on there right after a game, and he was preparing. And I'm I mean, Kobe outworked every damn body and every phase of everything. And he, I, I had a, I had to speak to a school group back after back after uh, Mad Game, the NBA, a Kobe NBA education. Kobe Bryant came out, and I said, if we all had the drive of Kobe Bryant as a culture, we'd be building condos on the moon about now. And it, it, it's it was just. And, and that is the basis of this intense love for, for Kobe. Uh, and he was a mamba. I, I'm dealing with another story where Kobe could do some very ferocious, cold things because his mom was that killer. As the great Mo Howard explained to me, Mo Howard and, and Jelly Bean Bryant were you know, high school players. They weren't on the same team, but they were in all the leagues and they formed this friendship. Their fathers were friends. And Mo said, Pam Bryant, she's the killer. That's where Kobe got that Mamba mentality from. And it was true. And it's just very sad because he had really, uh, he had really become uh, something very special. Now, there were things I left out of my book that I should have left out. Um, and it, it, there are things like that. I, I'm not, not really into going around reporting everybody's personal business. I mean, Kobe was, he was a guy growing up. He grew up in the NBA. The real tragedy, Tex and I thought, Kobe would, you know, he was miserable those first few seasons in L.A. He would go over and park at UCLA and watch those kids coming and going. He would think, you know, if Kobe had gotten two years of college, he'd be gone and played for Coach K at Duke. But 
And he asked Sonny Vaccaro, to me, this was the greatest tragedy. Uh, right after the high school season ended, there's that Adidas contract, and the family needs the money. Joe is the assistant JV girls basketball coach at the Jewish school there. And it, it was a lovely experience, and Joe Bryant was a sky full of life. But, you know, Pam Bryant was from a, you know, a family of, of some means. Her father was a, an officer in the Philadelphia Fire Department, and she, they like to spend money. They had an Italian villa, and I mean, they spent a lot of money. And he, Kobe looked at Sonny Vaccaro before he signed that Adidas contract that made him a pro. And he said, Mr. Vaccaro, is there a way that I could sign this contract and my parents could have this money and I could go play college ball? And the thing Kobe really wanted, he would just always tell me, I just want to be the man. And he was so intense about it that he didn't know um, how to deal with it. He just knew he wanted to be the greatest. And the thing that probably cost him the most was not playing a year or two of college basketball because he did. He was. It's not the league of today. The league he went into was a man's league, and for all of his athletic ability and wonder that he could create, he's still pretty much a boy. Wow. Roland, we really do appreciate your time here tonight. Uh, we have definitely closed in on our 48-minute show. Um, <laughs> it's been a joy to have you on, sharing your Thank unique you. experiences and stories. Absolutely. It's been an honor. Of course, uh, for all our listeners out there, the new book titled Magic, The Life of Irvin Magic Johnson is set to be released on October 24th. And Roland, for all those that enjoyed your stories here today, how can they follow you online? It's pretty we'll simple. My students at Virginia Tech got me on social media from the jump. So I'm at Lazenby. I, I don't have to have anything but at Lazenby on Twitter. Okay. They can find me. I'm RL Lazenby on Instagram and Facebook. You know, uh, perfect. Um, I, I, it's not hard to find me. Awesome. <laughs> well, we really do appreciate you stopping by the 48 Minutes podcast. And with that, that will do it for this edition of the 48 Minutes Podcast on Believe, presented by Bet Online. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back with you next week to be sure you're up to date in 48 on all things around the association. Take care, everybody.